0: So we're looking at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll be reading from verses 1 to 28 today. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that's within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, when we did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. That God may be all, in all. So last year, uh, last May, uh, me and my son Paul and my wife went on vacation for the first first real time uh, going on a family vacation since we had Paul. And so I did a lot of research to try to find out some fun things for Paul to do. Um, so the one thing I found was there was this farm called Hunt Farm. Was, we went down to Virginia Beach, and and this place was about a half hour away from where we were staying and it seemed like it had a lot of fun things to do. There was a petting zoo, had all different kinds of animals. They had this aviary uh, where you could kind of go in, and they'd give you this little stick of food, and they would come, uh, the birds would come and land on your on your hand, and there were pony rides and a playground, all this fun stuff to do. So I'm like, all right, this is going to be awesome. Paul's going to love this, and uh, so we go there, and we pay for admission. It was like $15 a person or something, maybe a little bit less for the kids, but it was a significant cost to go there, and the moment we walk in, he sees this the playground in the middle, and he says, slide, slide, so we go over and go down the slide, and we're like, all right, Paul, we're going to go over to the bird aviary, we're going to go see the birds, he just keeps saying, slide, slide, we go in there, and the birds are all flying around, I'm thinking he's going to love it. And he just kind of stands there a little bit concerned. I'm like, Paul, you want to hold one? He's like, no, no. Slide, slide. So we go out, go back on the slide. And then we take him to see the goats. And we're like, Paul, go see the goats. You want to pet the goat? And he's just kind of stepping back like he he's not sure about them. And then he's like, slide, slide. We take him to the pony. Try to put him on the pony ride. And he just completely loses it, wants nothing to do with riding the pony, he wants to go back to the slide. They had this fun treehouse thing where you walk through uh, these ropes and trees. It was a really cool thing. He kind of liked that a little bit, but afterwards, he wanted to go back to the slide one more time, and we'd spent, you know, hundreds of, driven hundreds of miles, spent money to go to this place, and the thing that he enjoyed was a slide that we could access, like, half a mile away from our house, for free. Now, of course, for him, the point of the whole day was the slide. And he was so focused on the slide that he missed out on some of the other things there that were fun to enjoy, like the pony rides and all the other animals I thought he was going to love. I think in a similar way, sometimes we can do that in regards to how we view the gospel. Often when we think about the gospel, we think about being saved. And certainly that's a part of the gospel. It's it's true that the gospel is about being saved. But the gospel is not simply about praying a prayer at some point in our life and just about going to heaven. It's much more than that. It's kind of like a jewel that you'd look at, and you can kind of look at it from different angles, and it kind of glimmers in a different light every way that you look at it. And the gospel, Paul says, is central to who we are as believers, without the gospel, the church doesn't exist. And Paul reminds the Corinthian believers that the gospel is of first importance, at the most, uh, the highest priority for us as believers in in Christ. And sometimes, as we talk about the gospel as believers, sometimes it becomes commonplace to us. You know, we think about it as kind of like the entryway into the Christian life, and it becomes kind of common and ordinary. But Paul describes this gospel as something that's something that we're supposed to treasure. It's something that's supposed to transform us. And so Paul says a lot about the gospel in this passage. He tells us first what the gospel is. He defines the gospel very clearly. And then he tells us that the gospel is something that's meant to grip our hearts and convince our minds. The gospel is something that's meant to grip our hearts and convince our minds. So he tells us first what is the gospel. Now when we think about the gospels, that's a little bit different than the gospel. The Gospels are the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the Gospels were probably referred to as the Gospels because in those texts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see the record of Jesus Christ. We see the record of his life, death, and resurrection. And so in the Gospels, we see the Gospel. Now the word Gospel in the ancient world was the word good news. And oftentimes a messenger would bring good news, maybe a of a of a victory in battle or some other good fortune that that befell someone, then the messenger would bring this gospel, this good news, to people. And uh, what Paul does in this passage is he kind of takes that as his own, and, and the gospel writers take it as their own. And it's not just the go- not just a gospel; it's the gospel, and that gospel is centered around Jesus Christ. What that Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. That's the gospel. The gospel is Jesus. Why the gospels are referred to as the gospels? Because in the gospels we see the gospel, the good news, Jesus Christ, who came to the earth, died on the cross, lived a sinless life, rose again, and is one day coming again. But I think as believers we have a tendency to sometimes move beyond that. Not to treasure it as the treasure that it is. There was a study that was done a few years ago by Router's Institute for the Study of Journalism, where they asked thousands of people uh, what the most important news stories were to them. And at the top were uh, international news stories, economic news, political news. Those were kind of the top things people said that they uh, they they were interested in. Uh, things that you know really impact your life. And this was like you know multiple times higher than other things that were, you know, kind of like pop news and things that are not as critical. And so what they did was then they went and they looked at a particular news day, June 17, 2014, and they looked at so what are the stories that people actually read? And so the most important news story, the big, according to, you know, the major newspapers during that time was the most important news story was the violent splintering of Iraq. It was kind of on the front pages of all the newspapers. But what they found was that story wasn't even close to being the most read story. The most read stories were about the World Cup, YouTube game, about gluten, postpartum depression, Miss America pageant, video music awards. And the biggest stories on those websites were not even news stories at all. They were, you know, fun quizzes and lists and kind of emotional, kind of things like that. Person who did the research claims says this: Ask audience what the audience is what they want, and they'll tell you vegetables. Watch the watch them quietly, and they'll mostly eat candy. You know, people said that the most important thing in there uh, to read international news, political news, economic news but they read about Miss America, about YouTube. And I think the same thing is true for us as believers. We say the gospel is the most important thing to us, but our hearts tend to drift towards other things that steal our affections. That's why the reformer Martin Luther said that the gospel has to kind of be beaten into our heads continually. He said this, here I must take counsel of the gospel. I must hearken to the gospel, which teeth- teaches me not what I ought to do, for that is the proper office of the law but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, hath done for me. To wit, that he had suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel willeth me to receive this and to believe it. And this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consisteth. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. And so as believers, we need to know first what the gospel is, and Paul defines that for us. The gospel is the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is centered around Jesus Christ. And that gospel, it ought to grip our hearts. It ought to move us. It's not simply information, it's truly freedom. This week I was talking to some friends and we were talking about why don't we get more excited about the things of God? Why do we get so excited when the Bills score a touchdown and we're jumping up and down but we don't have those same emotions about the things of God? I mean, think about it. Imagine that you receive good news or imagine that someone knocks on your door and says, hey, I just want you to know you won the lottery and $20 million is coming your way. Now, how would you respond to that? Would you be like, hmm, It's nice. Hope you have a great day. No, you'd be jumping up and down, maybe crying. You'd be calling your friends, anybody you know. You'd be making plans for a vacation maybe. I mean, it would completely change your life. The same thing is true with the gospel. It's not simply information. It's not something that we just simply know. It's something that transforms us. something that's meant to bring us joy. The man by the name of Ken Taylor is an author, actually um, translated and, and made the, the Living Bible. And he talks about a friend that he had that served as a missionary in a country where the uh, access to the gospel was very restricted. So he was taught from a young age that there's no God um, and basically that he serves the state. And so he never heard the gospel before. And uh, Ken Taylor's friend uh, started to kind of Witness to him, and he got to a point where he shared the gospel with him, and he was shocked at the response of this man who heard the gospel for the first time. He responded this way: He said, What you have told me cannot be true. If it were true, it is such good news that someone would have told me this before. A person who's never heard the gospel. It's like, this is too good to be true. I and mean, we have this great treasure that Christ has given us. He's given us his life. He's offered us freedom from sin and death. We don't have to live in fear or darkness anymore. But I think the problem is sometimes as believers, what we do is we react against something else rather than the gospel. We equate religion with the gospel. And when we think about the gospel, we think about Christianity, we think about Christ coming to the earth and just kind of telling us all the bad things that we've done telling us how terrible we are, and if we don't repent, we're just going to hell. That's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is Jesus coming and offering us life. He offers us new freedom. Yes, he calls us to leave some things behind, but not because he wants to keep anything from us, but because he wants us to experience the best life we can imagine in relationship with him. And so Jesus offers us the good life. Jesus is good news to us. We don't have to live in fear, darkness anymore. We don't have to live in bondage to our sin. Christ has set us free. That reality ought to move our hearts. Paul describes that the good news doesn't stop there. He talks about the fact that God chose to use him. He calls himself the least of the apostles and yet God chose to use him to be a conduit of love to those around him talks about the fact that the Lord appeared to him as one untimely born talks about the fact that he's unworthy to be an apostle and then he makes a beautiful statement profound statement I think that we can all identify with it says in verse 10 but by the grace of God I am what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain it says it's all of grace I didn't deserve this it Says I, I was out persecuting believers, I was putting them to death and yet God met me, God changed me and he set me on this new trajectory and now Paul himself becomes a conduit of love to those around him, that's what God does we're recipients of the gospel but he also makes us messengers of the gospel you receive good news if you receive that news you won the lottery, you're going to get 20 million dollars, you don't just keep that to yourself you tell those people around you not that you earned it you received a great gift and you share that with those around you. And so the gospel is meant to grip our hearts to change us and make us into messengers of the gospel to those around us. And so Paul says the gospel is meant to grip our hearts. But then he goes on and suggests that the gospel is also meant to convince our minds. So the gospel is good news, but it's not just some kind of pie in the sky you know, wishful thinking type good news. It's Good news that's based in reality. First, he says in verse 3 that the gospel is something he received. It's not something he made up. It's not that he just looked at the Old Testament and like, Oh, hmm, I think that this means this. Or I want to start this new religion today. He said, I received this message. I received it straight from Jesus Christ. And he goes on and says this is the same message that others are preaching as well. I'm not preaching my own message I'm simply a steward of what God has given me. He says this message is in accordance with the scriptures. Now it's remarkable uh, the cohesion of the, uh, of the whole Bible. You know, as one who's spent a lot of time studying the Bible and given my life to study the Bible, I mean, it's remarkable how you have people from different uh, backgrounds, different ethnicities, uh, different uh, languages, different time periods, and yet they come together and form this beautiful work of of God's word and and how the details just come together. You know, and you think about the New Testament, and and, and in many ways, the New Testament is just kind of a commentary on the Old Testament. It's like, you've heard this, you've read this, this is what it means. Or, this is the Messiah that you hoped for. Uh, One scholar, J. Barden Payne, has found as many as 574 verses in the Old Testament that somehow point to or describe or reference the coming Messiah. Alfred Edersheim found 456 uh, verses referring to the Messiah or his times. He's look at the cohesion of the Bible, and it's quite remarkable how God brought this book together. And so Paul says, this gospel, it's in accordance with the scripture. Everything that Jesus has come and said and, and he's done, it's in accordance with what you know, what you've been taught in the Old Testament. And then Paul goes on and he gives evidence for the resurrection. He gives evidence for the the truth of the gospel. He first says Christ died. What is the evidence that Christ died? The evidence that Christ died was Christ was buried. Wasn't that Christ just simply disappeared? Wasn't that people thought that he was dead? Uh, A spear was put through his side. He was put in a tomb, left there for three days. So Paul says he died and he was buried. He was in the tomb. There's no question about the fact that he was actually dead. And then he says that he rose from the grave. And what's the evidence that he rose from the grave? He appeared to the apostles. And he mentions a few people. I think the first he mentions is Peter. And then later he mentions James. Now why does he mention those people by name? Well, we don't know for sure, but remember back a few chapters ago, we talked about how there were different factions in the church at Corinth. And we talked about some people who would say, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos or I follow Peter. Well, I think Paul here is emphasizing the fact that Peter, the one that other people would say is kind of a rival to Paul, although Paul would never say that or suggest that. He says, Paul or, or Peter, he's a witness to the same gospel. He's a witness to the same Jesus. And the one that you say is my rival, he preaches the same message that I do. He goes on to say that Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time. What that indicates is that it's very unlikely that they were hallucinating. If you have just one person that says, oh yeah, I saw Jesus here, you know, you could say, well, maybe they thought they saw Jesus. Maybe it looked like Jesus. But Paul says there's 500 people that saw him at one time. And and it's verifiable, he says. These people, many of them are still alive. If you want, you can go find them. You can go talk to them and see the evidence that he actually was, ha, has risen from the grave. Now you think about the truth of the gospel. And we think about the evidence for Christianity. And oftentimes what people do, you know, if they're you know, questioning the Christian faith, is they'll take one passage in the Bible and kind of compare it against another passage. And be like, well, this this passage says one thing, and this one says something slightly different, and so the Bible can't be true because there's inconsistencies. And it's like trying to find something wrong with the Bible. And oftentimes, you know, when you get to the heart of it, it's just that we don't understand exactly how those things come together. You know, and you look at even archaeological things. You know, like that. For years, people would say that the biblical David never existed, and it's foolish to believe that David existed. You know, and then several years later they found archaeological evidence that he actually did exist. You know, so oftentimes those inconsistencies are just appearances of inconsistencies, but what people don't do usually is they don't go to the resurrection. Because you know, if you look at the resurrection from kind of a journalistic perspective and you kind of weigh the evidence, the evidence is overwhelming that Jesus actually did rise from the, from the grave. I mean, the, over, the evidence is overwhelming. The only piece of evidence that's really against it is the fact that it's supernatural. Nobody gets up from the grave. Nobody is dead and buried and then rises again from the grave. That's the only piece of evidence that you have that Jesus didn't actually rise from the grave. I remember my first year of college, I was taking an introductory psychology class, and the first chapter, I remember reading that basically whatever you observe, you have to remove the supernatural from it. Whatever you observe among people as you're doing study, there has to be a scientific explanation for it. You cannot result to uh, supernatural interpretations. And I think that's oftentimes people's mindset. It doesn't matter what the evidence may suggest because people don't rise up from the grave. Science must have an explanation. And so that's why you you have liberal scholars who will come up with different theories. It's like people, they thought that Jesus was dead. You know, they thought he was dead, and and then he got up and was fine. You know, or his disciples came and stole his body. You know, or, you know, the one I find the most humorous is like, you know, they'll say, well, Jesus didn't actually walk on the water. There was like a patch of ice, and he was kind of floating on a patch of ice, and they just thought he was walking on the water. You know, and it's this idea that, you know, if it's supernatural, there has to be a scientific ex- explanation, because people don't walk on water, people don't get up from the grave. And for some, it's not about the evidence, it's just too unbelievable to be true. Mary Jo Sharp writes in her book, Why I Still Believe, there's something else going on here. She says humans don't always believe it when they see it. She then offers the example of General Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was careful to document his visit to a concentration camp during the Second World War. In an April 1945 letter to George Marshall, he wrote this about his visit to a concentration camp in Germany. The thing I, things I saw beggars description. The visual evidence and the verbal testimony of starvation, cruelty, and bestiality were so overpower, overpowering as to leave me a bit sick. I made the visit deliberately in order to be in a position to give first-hand evidence of these things. If ever in the future there develops a tendency to charge those, these allegations merely to propaganda. Eisenhower ordered the collection of documentations of the Holocaust resulting in 80,000 feet of film footage which was used as evidence in the Nuremberg trials. Eisenhower also collected numerous photos including ones of his, himself at concentration camps to provide evidence of firsthand witness. And yet it didn't take long for Holocaust deniers to appear. These deniers are people, she says, who have access to an abundance of, te- abundance of testimony and evidence of the existence of the Holocaust. Somehow, with all the evidence available, the Holocaust deniers remain unconvinced of this horrific event in human history. The Holocaust is just one of those events that is like too unbelievable for some people to believe. It didn't matter what the evidence suggests, I thought surely someone couldn't treat their fellow man like this. And a similar thing happens with the gospel. It's not about the evidence. The evidence is overwhelming for the truth of the resurrection. But sometimes we go back to our presuppositions that someone can't really rise from the grave. So as believers in Christ, we can rest on firm footing. we can have a a, a faith that's not a blind faith. There's good historical evidence, reasons to believe that what we hope in is actually true, that Jesus did rise from the grave and if he rose from the grave, it changes everything. So that's the gospel. Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. It's meant to grip our hearts, to convince our minds. And remarkably, in the church at Corinth, there were people who were saying that there was no resurrection. I mean, it's remarkable to think about. Now, they probably weren't saying that Jesus didn't rise from the grave. What they were probably saying is, we're not going to rise from the grave. It's like, okay, Jesus rose from the grave, but that doesn't affect us so much. I mean, we're still going to go to the grave. Our existence is is still going to end at the grave. I mean, it's great that Jesus rose from the grave and everything, but it's not going to affect our hearts. It's not going to affect our destiny. And Paul refutes that pretty harshly. Paul goes on to say, if that's your viewpoint, your faith is futile. I mean, what are you hoping in if it's just going to end at the grave? And this message that we proclaim, this gospel... You know, we're misrepresenting God. We're kind of lying to people if that's the case. And further, if that's the case, then we're of all men to be pitied. So Paul is going around and he's being persecuted. He's beaten, he's thrown into prison, he's condemned, he's beaten in so many different ways. And Paul says, if there's no gospel, if there's no hope at the end, then, I mean, what is this all for? But he argues, and we know that there is a gospel. Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again and, make, and bring us to be with him. And, for, and when we die, our bodies will rise to new life. I mean, we think about the Corinthians, and it seems incredibly silly what they thought. That there was no resurrection. And, it, and though it seems silly, I thump, sometimes think we do the similar thing with, in regards to the The gospel. I think sometimes we believe the gospel in our head, but it doesn't make its way down to our hearts. I mean, we know the truth of it, but we act as if it doesn't affect us. We act as if it doesn't make a difference in our life. We act as if it doesn't change our destiny. I was watching a video with some friends this week, and they sh- shared a story about George Whitfield, a great preacher uh, of, of, of a few centuries ago. And he was given a sermon, and he said this, I'll tell you a story. The Archbishop of Canterbury in the year 1675 was acquainted with Mr. Butterton, the actor. One day the Archbishop said to Butterton, pray, inform me, Mr. Butterton, what is the reason you actors on stage can affect your congregations with speaking of things imaginary as if they were real, while we in church speak of things real, which our congregations only receive as if they were imaginary? Why, my Lord, says Butterton, the reason is very plain. We actors on stage speak of things imaginary as if they were real. And you in the pulpit speak of things real as if they were imaginary. Actors speak of things imaginary as if they're real. You in the pulpit speak of things real as if they're imaginary. Sometimes I think we do the same thing as believers. The things that we know are real things that we know are true they don't make their way down to our heart and we treat them om- almost as if they're imaginary because they don't affect our lives but jesus came to the earth died on the cross rose from the grave he's coming again and that changes everything i'd like to quote from the end of kenneth Laterat's seven volume history of the expansion of christianity referring to jesus the epitome of the gospel he says this No life ever lived on this planet has been so influential in the affairs of men as that of Christ. From that brief life and its apparent frustration has flowed a more powerful force for the triumphal waging of man's long battle than any other ever known by the human race. Through it, millions of people have had their inner conflicts resolved. Through it, hundreds of millions have been lifted from illiteracy and ignorance and have been placed upon the road of growing intellectual freedom and control over the physical environment. It has done more to allay the physical ills of disease and famine than any other impulse. And it has emancipated millions from chattel slavery, millions of others from uh, thraldom to vice. It has protected tens of millions from exploitation by their fellows. And has been the most fruitful source of movements to lessen the horrors of war and to put the relations of men and nations on the basis of justice and peace. Ladies and gentlemen, there's good news today. And the good news, his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus changes everything. It doesn't matter what we're facing today. We're all facing different troubles. It doesn't matter uh, what your bank account, how, how much money is in your bank account. It doesn't matter what illness you're dealing with. It doesn't matter what relational problem you're dealing with. Jesus is good news for you today. It doesn't matter what variant comes around the corner. Jesus is good news for you today. And as believers in Jesus, we can wake up each and every morning rejoicing in the fact that Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ has risen and Christ is coming again. And that changes everything. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the good news that you came to the earth to die on the cross for us, paying the ultimate price for us so that we could experience freedom. We can experience life. Lord, help us to rejoice in your gospel today and every day. Help us to never move beyond the gift that you've given us. You've given us a gift, the gift of your life that changes everything. Help it to move its way from our heads to our hearts. Help it to influence how we love those around us. Help us to influence how we think about the future and the hope that we have. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace, and we look forward to your coming. In Christ's name I pray.